Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. Have you ever wondered why art can be so expensive or why one painting costs so much more than another or who sets these prices, how that all works? Uh, the art world can be really sort of cloak and dagger whenever it comes to these things. I know I've asked these questions a million times and it's a very difficult system to understand. But if you want to understand it, you might want to find someone with a job title of cultural strategy consultant. It just so happens that our next guest has just such a title. And not only has he worked with big brands and big organizations to develop their cultural strategy, but he actually is trained originally as a sociologist. So he has a very interesting perspective into the business and sort of the social constructs behind the art world. In fact, he even worked under a professor during his PhD studies that invented the term the art world. So we're talking to someone very interesting. Andras, uh, if you don't mind, give give the listeners a little bit of background. And uh, I'm going to let you pronounce your last name for them. Well, actually, I'll pronounce both the first and the last. It's Andras Santo. Um, if, if that sounds a bit odd, it's a Hungarian name. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, actually, in, in Hungarian, you, you're supposed to say it the other way around, but let's not get into <laughs> linguistics. Fair uh, enough. Uh, so, yes, I, um, I advise museums, foundations, uh, cultural organizations, educational organizations, uh, brands on strategy and strategic initiatives in the arts and cultural space, mostly in the visual art world. Um, but the visual art world really connects to everything else. Um, and uh, uh, those projects may range from a comprehensive look at uh, why, what an organization does, what direction it seeks to take, uh, to specific projects that uh, either a museum or a brand might want to do in the art world. Um, you know, consultants are coming many shapes and sizes. I think the most uh, relevant point on my end is I'm not, I'm not what normal parlance calls an art consultant, which basically is a broker who connects buyers and sellers as is involved in the transactional side of the art world. I'm more interested and more involved in institutional or organizational strategy than um, uh, the sales or the transaction side of the art world. But we can get into that as we go along. Sure. So I'm curious just to kind of start out here. Obviously, you've spent um, an entire career around the arts. What, what was your initial thrust into that? Yeah. So. Um, People, it's funny these days. I mean, I've been in the art world 20, 30 years, and it's always fun how you get introduced at parties or panels. And I really have gotten the gamut. You know, they've called me a, a art historian, a curator, and 
Actually, I started out as a sociologist. Um, I was getting my PhD in sociology at Columbia University back in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, having already had a very deep immersion in the art world previously and a deep interest, I was interested in what a social scientist could possibly say about, about the arts or how I could get closer to that subject. And um, some of your listeners may know that the 1980s were really the precursor or perhaps the starting point to the sort of extreme commercialization of the art world, which we now see in a kind of apotheosis form uh, today. Uh, but really, in the late 80s, there was a big uh, boom in the art world, uh, unprecedented escalation of values, huge amount of activity. Um, which for many people in that world sort of denoted a kind of before and after. Um, it's when the art world really turned into a major international cultural industry. And um, I was very interested in that transition because I saw it as a kind of Petri dish version of, of modernization in general. I thought it would be a subject that uh, some of the tools of social science could um, write about. And very quickly, I zeroed in on art galleries as an interesting site of study because our galleries are where art meets money in this very curious and for some controversial alchemy. Um, and they were never written about because uh, traditional art history, certainly as it was practiced 20, 30 years ago, uh, tended to be fairly blind or willfully blind to the sort of, um, you know, how the sausage is made part of the art world. You know, hmm. um, art, art was supposed to be described in critical terms and um, as a as a as a dynamic predicated on ideas and expressions. Uh, and what the sort of real world side of the art world did was largely left in the shadows or in the footnotes. So, I became very interested on how um, what gallery what makes galleries have the ability to um, ascribe values and how they manage through this period of transition. I ended up very closely examining three of the leading galleries of that time. It was also my sort of ticket into the art world because in the process of doing that, I got to know collectors, dealers, artists. Um, um, I Later on, when I went on to teach people about the art world, which I did for many years, I always told my students that they should consider their dissertations as a kind of Trojan horse, uh, as a means mm -hmm. of entering that world. And um, even though later on, parts of my career took other turns, I was running an institute for cultural journalists for a while. I was doing a lot of teaching. In the end, it did uh, remain in or led back to the art world as I, uh, you know, today I you know, really focus on uh, really all my life is in the art world. But what I find is that the background in an academic study of the art world, and frankly, also background in uh, journalism about the art world, which compels you to speak uh, reasonably clearly, something that not all members of the art world do, <laughs> um, uh, along with teaching, which uh, compels you to sort of make a case uh, for uh, certain ideas or how the world works, all of those tools have become uh, 
very helpful to me in working with my clients who are major museums or boards or uh, businesses uh, around the world. So anyway, it did start with sociology, although I will say for those who are, those listeners who are a little bit more steeped in things, that my main mentor was actually a philosopher, an art critic named Arthur Danto, who coincidentally is the guy who coined the term art world. Ah, very interesting. So you're you're close to the source, huh? <laughs> very close to the source, yes. So I, I'm curious, one of, one of the questions that we try to kind of poke and prod um, with our listeners and something that I think you'll have some unique insight into is why is it that uh, so sort of typically with the art world, as we say, the art world, what people associate with that is, and I'm talking about real true layman, the vision of the art world tends to be sort of hoity-toity, white-walled galleries, um, you know, snobby people, uh, and and this whole culture of um, almost bullshittery, you know, like, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the blue collar view of that world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, and as you look at other art forms, say um, music is an obvious example with jazz or classical music, or even cooking with, you know, starred Michelin restaurants, people understand that, yeah, there's sort of this fine art world that has an academic background and um, critics are really important, but there's also sort of this middle tier where there's enthusiasts, people who are just really Mm -hmm. into it, um, but not quite as purist. Why do we not see that quite as much in the visual art world? Well, I'm not sure I completely subscribe to your premise. Sure. Um, I think uh, 7 million people going to the Met each year would certainly suggest that there are a lot of enthusiasts who are not necessarily, you know, aficionados um, um, or, um, you know, ivory tower participants of the art world. So I think, in fact, I think relative to other, many other sort of fine art forms like classical music or dance, uh, you know, in fact, the visual art world commands a very large um lay audience um but um but i i'm happy to sort of uh, hang on to sort of the 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 premise to to some degree i actually tend to think that people have two erroneous preconceived ideas of the art world one is a kind of dark um and sinister view which is sort of what you kind of find often in the press which is that the art world is a kind of conspiracy of experts you know uh, wealthy collectors and dealers who sort of come together you know um, um, making sort of bets on which artists are going to be important Um, critics uh, providing a kind of um, uh, wrapping of esoteric language that sort of elevates everything Um, you know institutions that are somehow Working in cahoots with the market, and um, and that there's quite, and that according to this dark view, which obviously I don't necessarily subscribe to, um, that the art world is a kind of insider's game, and uh, uh, there's a lot of journalism that sort of purports to sort of blow the lid off of that. And then conversely, there is still a kind of uh, another uh, kind of fantasy view of the art world, uh, which is maybe the view of a 
young college student, uh, wide-eyed, you know, entering this world, which is a kind of very optimistic or sentimental idea, which is that it's a world governed by um, theories and ideas and artistic merit and a kind of pure conversation about what art is or ought to be uh, and where the relevant dynamics are lodged in the realm of uh, ideas. Um, and you know the market sort of follows on the trail of of this beautiful discourse uh, somewhere. So you could probably hear just by the tone of my voice that I don't necessarily believe in either one of these things. And in fact, what I think is interesting about the art world is that it's a little bit of both. It is uh, it is a hybrid world, um, a world that is uh, that encompasses both um, a beautiful uh, sort of halcyon world of ideas and uh, very deep notions and creativity and very far away from commercial interests, but also a world uh, that encompasses a $50 billion a year international industry with thousands of galleries where there's money to be made and investments are made and technology plays a role. And frankly, these two parts of this world uh, operate uh, hand in hand. Um, I think it is true that for a lot of people, um, the art world is very opaque, it's threatening, it's elitist. Um, certainly the commercial part of the art world for many people, uh, people are, you know, they walk into an art gallery and they're confronted by somebody at the front desk who barely looks at them. And you know, it's a very different experience from, let's say, walking into a supermarket or a sneaker shop. Um, some of that attitude, I think, is highly lamentable. Um, some of it is, frankly, a form of marketing. Um, but I think overall, in recent years, there's been much more transparency, both in the commercial and the non-commercial side of the art world. And um, years ago, I wrote an essay about this. And uh, since you mentioned cuisine a moment ago, yeah, I, I, uh, this essay was written after there was a major controversy at the Brooklyn Museum involving the Saatchi collection and the mayor of New York, uh, Mr. Rudy Giuliani, uh, who these days is uh, often in the news. Right back in the news, uh, yeah. In a, in a completely different way. <laughs> uh, at that time, he made a big cause out of attacking the Brooklyn Museum and threatening to uh, withdraw support because they were exhibiting works by artists that he didn't like and there was a big drama around the fact that a private collection was installed in the Brooklyn Museum and the press uh, really raked the museum across the coals. Uh, Long story short there was a lot of discussion then about you know why the people don't understand the art world and I in this essay I said well maybe we should borrow a page from the world of cuisine and Michelin star um, restaurants because, uh, you know, if 30 years ago you had asked a chef in a Michelin star restaurant to break down the wall between the uh, kitchen and the uh, dining room, he would have looked at you and thought you were crazy or certainly very disrespectful. After all, it was nobody's business how the food was cooked. Uh, They just needed to sit in the dining room and receive the benefactions of the kitchen. 
Um, but <laughs> what happened? People started. People did take down the walls to the kitchen. Suddenly, uh, we live in a world of open kitchens in restaurants. What happened? The chefs became global mega celebrities. The public is obsessed with food. You can watch TV channels devoted to nothing but cuisine. Um, there is a worldwide interest in cuisine, and let's add, the kitchens are much cleaner. Um, there's probably no cockroaches in these kitchens anymore because <laughs> uh, because it, they're out in plain view. Um, the art world is still kind of in a place where cuisine was 20, 30 years ago. We are still not very comfortable uh, showing people how the meal is made. Uh, this is true on the commercial side of the art world, where there's very little transparency, mainly for business reasons, because a huge part of the art market is uh, run by privately held companies, which don't have any disclosure obligations. Uh, on mm -hmm. the nonprofit side, um, it's a it's a different story again, because it has to do with how museums um, like to present themselves to the public. So I'm curious, I mean, if transparency is sort of the answer, I think that's a beautiful notion and makes a lot of sense to me in terms of analogy. But what does that look like in practice in your head? Right. So in, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. Is transparency the answer? Uh, to some extent, um, maybe not. You know, um, we do want, I think, as a society, we do want to hold art in a high regard, right? So um, I think, um, you know, we believe that art is these objects, which are part of the art world, that they are sort of in a, in a, in a realm apart from ordinary life, much like religion is in a realm apart from ordinary life. So mm. uh, you do wonder if we completely demolish the walls of uh, intransparency, uh, do we make, you know, do we sort of take too much of the wrapping of mystery or, um, you know, if we start just treating art as just another ordinary thing, um, uh, removing these barriers from everyday life, then, then will art remain special? I leave that as a question. I think as a practical matter, um, I think uh, the answer is different in the commercial side and the non-commercial side of the art world. In the commercial side of the art world, really transparency is about price and pricing and transactional transparency. So mm. if you look at the stock market, for example, when you buy a stock, um, you have uh, enormous amount of data that you can base your purchase on. Uh, so if somebody's offering you uh, Amazon stock for $50, it won't take you too long to figure out that that's an amazing deal. You should go for it. Uh, if somebody's offering you Amazon stock for five thousand dollars, <laughs> again, won't take you too long to figure out like that's probably not a good. There's pricing history. There's a enormous amount of transparency around pricing and transactions uh, in the, in that field. Um, the art market is pretty much at the opposite end. Basically, the only kind of transactions that we see transparently are those that are posted by auction houses, but, uh, you know, we, those are also not particularly clear always what, what, 
what the actual price was that was paid for complicated reasons. Uh, nonetheless, I think um, um, this is a very interesting question because uh, uh, galleries have been very reluctant to share pricing information, transaction information. And that's partly because a lot of the business is an arbitrage-based business, right? You're an insider. You know that the work is available for X over here. There's a buyer who's willing to pay Y. and it's the margin that you that, that that's what that business is about. So, um, will there be a kind of um, opening up um, in the near future? I I don't think so because galleries, uh, unless galleries become large publicly traded enterprises, um, they really have very little incentive to share this information. Hmm. So um, so therefore. Uh, there is a lot more we know compared to the past because of the internet and the ability to aggregate and cross compare. And there's a lot of websites now where you can make certain judgments, but 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 only about certain kinds of works. Uh, so um, uh, so really, um, you know, there are of course a lot of efforts being made by introduce more transparency into the marketplace, but a lot of those are also you know, things that have come and gone over the years. But if you look back 20, 30 years, I remember when the New York Attorney General was suing galleries just to post prices. Um, like that was a big victory at one point when galleries were obliged to actually provide the pricing information to anyone who requested it. Before that, they didn't even have to do that. Hmm. So um, I think that, um, um, you know, what would compel uh commercial players to divulge pricing information well presumably if there was such a strong upside associated with making the data transparent that that would validate um this step um and there are those who argue that if the um if commercial actors in the art world were committed to far more transparency then that would re result in a huge influx of capital into mm. the art market. You know, it's very important to remember that the art market is a tiny market. There are a number of companies in America, just in the United States, that have annual turnovers in excess of the entire trading volume of the entire global art market. Mm. So um, that's the commercial side. On the non-commercial side, um, this issue of transparency uh, is, it plays out completely differently. Um, I personally think that uh, institutions have much to gain from sharing the story of how they do what they do, whether it is activities in museums that are not about, you know, exhibitions. Uh, for example, phenomenal, super interesting things about how works are conserved and how that kind of research is done. I think it's just a huge amount of fantastic content that is frankly um, not being, not taken advantage of. Um, but I even would go further. I think that, uh, you know, for those who, who've experienced what it takes to put together a major international exhibition, um, it's fascinating. I mean, maybe I'm sort of a nerd, but, um, you know, if, if you look at some of these major global exhibitions where 
so many lenders are involved and so much research and travel and hunting down objects and convincing people to loan them. I think these are great stories. And I think audiences today would be very interested in the kitchen, uh, so to speak. And I think it would lead to greater uh, engagement with uh, art institutions and it would bring in uh, more of the public. Um, You know, there are, in fact, many uh, initiatives in the museum world that have opened up the kitchen a little bit. Uh, uh, I'll give you two examples. Um, uh, open storage is an example. Some museums uh, have decided that rather than keeping a large part of their collection under lock and key in storage rooms, that they could create transparent storage where you could see you know the 2000 shards of pottery that are not out in the galleries it's actually quite beautiful you can go to the metropolitan museum and see um, hundreds and hundreds of tea kettles and teapots and um, all manner of objects that are part of the american wings collections and people are fascinated by that Um, similarly some museums have uh, conducted uh, restoration projects of paintings or ceilings um, in plain view of the public rather than um, hidden in conservation studios. And people are really fascinated by that. So I think as a general rule, contemporary in the contemporary world, um, there is both a demand for and a fascination for uh, getting an insider's view of how institutions function. And I, I actually think there's very little risk associated with that. And there's much to be gained from, um, from sharing this kind of, um, as I said, this kind of kitchen confidential material. Hey, everybody. I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second. First and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening Uh, We really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, I mean, this, it, it sounds to me, if you take if you take the word art out of this and just talk to this as an industry, this this model of um, sort of opaqueness to keep margins where they need to be and, you know, sort of using lack of information to um, sort of keep a buffer between the consumer and the seller, these are all problems that have been just obliterated by online technologies and the ability to scale and the ability to do things like, you know, you mentioned Amazon earlier, right? And they have the ability to do things like sell in volume instead of having to maintain huge margins. So, right. So why is it, do you think that 
technology has not yet been able to make a mark on the democratization end of this yet. Yeah, well, I think again, I think you're overstating. I think there has there have been great strides forward, and uh, if you look at platforms like Artsy and Artnet and um, uh, various auction platforms that are now beginning to conduct um, quite a lot of transactions. Uh, certainly, on the communication side, there's there's a you know a lot of uh, content around uh, art that can be directly accessed. But I think overall, I'm not disagreeing with you that uh, compared to other industries, the art world has not been disrupted to anything close to the degree. Uh, I mean, think of your last taxi ride and how you did that versus. <laughs> um, so uh, by and large, uh, we are still functioning by the old rules. And I have a very um, glib uh, sort of uh, proposition about why we haven't been disrupted so much, um, disintermediated, if you will. Um, so I always like to say that the, the, the digital world, the technical world, hasn't been able to disrupt the art world yet because we, meaning the art world, have the most complex data. Hmm. Um, you know, in my view, and maybe this is a romantic view, I think that art is the most complex form of data that we have invented as a civilization. Um, you know, it's um, uh, you know, if you if you want to solve the 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 optimization question of what is the quickest path from Pennsylvania Station in New York to Montauk next Saturday afternoon, uh, you're basically talking about a database search. Mm. And if someone used to make money having that information at their fingertips and charging you for it, that person is now out of business, right? Same is true for airline reservations or other things where really the data pretty hard data was available and with the right algorithms and search mechanisms, um, people could connect the dots. But in the case of art, um, the data, the relevant data, I'm not talking about, you know, is the Guggenheim Museum open on, open on Tuesday afternoon? I'm talking about the real essential discussion around art. You're talking about content that is unbelievably complex. It's a cultural content, it's visual. Um, and so I think we are just now beginning to be on the cusp of the evolution of artificial intelligence and big data, mm. where the capabilities of programmers um, are beginning to rise to the level where they might be able to construct algorithms and services that could uh, match the complexity of the information that lies at the heart of the art world. Yeah. If, if and when they do, there's going to be a lot of disintermediation. Um, but uh, for the time being, that's, I think, still far off. I mean, I was at the Google Labs in Paris recently, and there's wonderful things that they can do. For example, there's this wonderful huge wall and they can show you millions of art objects in Google's database. And um, the young lady who was doing this demo for me 
said, well, watch, watch this. And so, you know, tens of thousands of art objects were swarming on this giant screen and a few hundred of them seemed to sort of self-select and then they sort of landed on the screen and I saw maybe 30 objects. And then she said, what do you, what do you notice about them? And they were all sculptures that had their noses missing. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. that's pretty cool. If you think 20 years ago that, uh, that a machine could find in the universe of art 30 objects that had no noses, like that's pretty cool. But as far as, let's say, um, any kind of exhibition or art-related discourse is concerned, it's still pretty um, simplistic. So, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, but, 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 but you could sort of see how maybe 30 years from now forward, you'll be able to tell Google or whatever else is ruling the roost at that point. Um, you know, I, I, I want to organize an exhibition about the feeling of melancholy. Um, and I only want to use works from the late 19th century um, in a way that has never been done before in any kind of previous exhibition. And maybe it will spit out 40 works with provenance information and you have your show, by the way, also, which could be perfectly rendered by that point on hmm. virtual reality or something. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, but 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 first we have to solve this puzzle. We have to the, the programmers have to crack this incredibly complex data that we have the privilege to be working with. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because that that aligns really tightly with some of the trends that are happening in the technology world. That you know, with AI and machine learning, that's exactly the type of problem that that we're working on now in Silicon Valley. So. Yes, and good luck with that. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think, uh, um, you know, I think that uh, we live in a moment of great anticipation and anxiety yes. around AI. I think, uh, um, you know, my feeling about these things is that reality sort of tends to fall roughly uh, beyond the, the lowest expectations, but but usually far short of the most extreme expectations, whether they're utopian or dystopian. Hmm. Um, and um, I want to maybe also point out another point, though, which is goes back to your question of why the hoopla, why the shrouding of mystery, why 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 has the art world been able to maintain um, this sort of um, mysterious way and i think that you have to allow for the possibility that people like that that people that there's a vested interest in mm. in that game that um if people just want a kind of dispassionate linear investment-minded um rationalistic uh pursuit they can go buy stocks or start companies but that actually people like to participate in this world, in this form. They like to go to a gallery where there's a back room and maybe get entrance to the back room if they've sort of reached a certain credibility as a collector. They like the prestige. They like the theater. They like the mystery. That there's a social investment mm. in the status quo as well. Interesting. Um, and uh, people want magic in their lives. They want mystery in their lives and they want status and prestige in their lives. So a lot of which is not rational, but it's part of being human. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the argument or the comment that I would make on that, though, is that 
that that premise I think exists regardless of the art form you're talking about. I mean, it's the same thing as wanting to be introduced to your favorite musician or, um, you know, getting, getting a private dinner with your favorite chef. Uh, I agree with that entirely that there's always going to be that sort of mystique of being around. And and that comes from largely from the myth of the artist, right. And people just feeling the magic of an artist in their presence. Right. But good that you mentioned, good that you mentioned music, right. So, um, if I was just being rational, I could uh, download a track on Spotify and play it on my headphones. Many people instead choose to spend an inordinate amount of money on a ticket for a concert and go driving for hours, standing in line, putting themselves in the front of a stage with a bunch of shrieking people, uh, exposing themselves to no small personal risk, or in many ways, extremely unpleasant experience of blasting music that could mm-hmm. you know, hurt their eardrums to then witness a kind of completely pseudo-religious ritual of guys with long hair and strange <laughs> uh, laser shows. Right. Um, so is that really the best way to enjoy music? Well, not really, but that depends on what your definition of an encounter with a cultural act is. And sure. I think that, uh, yes, you could download that same track probably for free or for a penny and in a certain way enjoy it, but but there is something about participating in this social milieu of that art and the sort of rituals surrounding it, which we value. As a matter of fact, if anything, in today's world, we are seeking out these kinds of collective rituals. Um, you know, I think that uh, that there's a, that there's something there's a connective tissue between Burning Man and Lulapalooza and Art Basel. Mm. You know, we are all lost in our little uh, digital devices, uh, isolated from other people most of the time. But then we get on the road and go to where another 10,000 people like us are, and we like to breathe the same air and be in the same room. So can you, just for listeners, can you talk a little bit about what Art Basel is and what you're doing there? Well, Art Basel is the world's leading uh, art fair of modern and contemporary art. It was established more than 50 years ago by a, a group of dealers and collectors in the city of Basel, which is one of Europe's most um, historic cities, uh, home of universities and pharmaceutical industries and, you know, very affluent uh, city, also known for its extraordinary museums and art collections. Um, and, uh, when it was established, it was one of really a handful of art fairs, uh, uh, that existed in the world. Um, and over its 50 years of evolution has grown into an event that takes place three times a year, once in Basel, once in Miami, once in Hong Kong, and now draws tens of thousands of people, many, many more online who um, go inside these large convention centers where the best galleries of the world, about two, 300 each time, um, present art from their uh, stable of artists. Um, and it is actually much more than that. It is surrounded by talks, events, performances, uh, all kinds of side events, parties, um, that that make uh, Art Basel a kind of annual 
pilgrimage, not just for collectors, but really for the whole art world and indeed a wider world of people who are interested in art and interested in this sort of lifestyle. So, um, and it's now one of several hundred art fairs that take place around the world, but it's, uh, it's the leading art fair hmm. at, at, at the moment. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> Andres, listen, this, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, I don't want to keep you for longer than do, but I, I have to say, um, I really appreciate the time and I think that it's really important that this world has people with the type of voice that you have that is challenging. You know, just as I reflect on the conversation with you today, I think this notion of rejecting the premise <laughs> is is really, really important in this world. And, you know, I I appreciate that because my questions aren't necessarily coming from a, you know, I'm not trying to force a premise. I'm I sort of represent the layman who understands the art world in a very narrow way. Absolutely. I, I, I think that um, it, and I appreciate what you said, but I think, you know, we all look at the world through various lenses and, um, and um, the art world is often see, seen through lenses, which, which aren't entirely appropriate. And one of them is a somewhat vastly encoded, romantic lens um probably suggesting a, a way of looking at the art that never truly existed you know in the end yeah. artists always artists always wanted to eat they were always eager to be supported by patrons for example we could have a very interesting discussion about patronage today and mm. um um the allegedly nefarious intent of let's say corporate patrons who i think are actually rather benign in comparison to, uh, let's say, state or religious patronage of the past. Hmm. Um, um, and, uh, and then there's also a great deal of distrust about the art world today because it has become highly commercialized. And there are many um, uh, valid uh, criticisms about what this commercialism has brought about. On the other hand, um, sort of neglecting to acknowledge that nobody is being forced to do any of this. You know, that in fact, mm. uh, artists are very happy to see their works being sold for a lot of money. And the people who buy these works are not <laughs> doing it on, under duress. <laughs> right. And that a very, very large industry of people now exists who are making a living or being around art, uh, teachers and writers and uh, art insurers and advertisers and printers and and so on. So I think you know there is definitely um, many uh, opportunities to misunderstand uh, this world. Um, I, I do think that uh, we uh, uh, to some extent need to uh, be. Uh, cautious about some of the excesses of this world, uh, but I think overall uh, it is to it is an opportunity. It's an occasion for re rejoicing when we see that in fact there are more artists working today, um, showing their works to more people for more value uh, than ever in history. Like that is basically fundamentally a good thing. So I think we can agree on that much. And then there's still 
quite a lot we can disagree about. Sure. Always easier to be critical than to celebrate the successes, right? Exactly. Well, right before I let you go, one thing that we try to do on this podcast, just to lighten it up at the end, because sometimes it can get heavy, is a handful of rapid-fire questions. Do you have time to go through four real quick questions? <laughs> I can't promise I'll answer all of them, but why not? <laughs> all right. First, what is, the, what is the website that you go to most often that's not Google? Well, I'm afraid it's uh, New York. Well, not afraid. It's the New York Times.com. <laughs> it's probably if more people fell in that boat, we'd probably be in a little <laughs> bit better position socially. But <laughs> all right. If you were stranded on a desert island, what book would you want with you? Oh, God. Well, I prefer a library. Um, <laughs> but uh, oh, gosh, gosh. Well, I think. Uh, you know, I'm a great fan of The Man Without Qualities by Robert Musil. It would be nice to reread that, and I probably would need to be stuck on a desert island to have a chance to do that again. <laughs> Fair enough. I like that answer. Uh, what did you eat for breakfast this morning? Um, my younger son had a bowl of granola, and he didn't finish it, and I uh, <laughs> scarfed it down after <laughs> <laughs> the the, <laughs> the prizes of fatherhood. That's what my dad used to call it. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. The leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> Last but certainly not least, who is your favorite Beatle? Well, that is a really <laughs> uh, incisive uh, I know. question. Oh, I think at the end of the day, I have to say, I probably come down. I think I'll go for John. <laughs> of course, that makes sense as the artist. <laughs> well, Andres, it's been... And with great respect to his wonderful wife, who I once had a chance to spend a lovely evening with him, uh, in New York, and who has uh, made extraordinary contributions of her own uh, as an artist and uh, an advocate uh, yeah. uh, that, that she ought to be recognized for. Well, that's Even a, more. That's a beautiful answer. I was not expecting that you could have a direct connection to John Lennon, and I I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, great, Andres. This has been really an absolute pleasure, um, and uh, I think our listeners are going to get a lot of out of this conversation. I mean, there's a lot. It, it's not all the time that we get to talk to a guest who leaves me feeling so uplifted and uh, sort of hopeful about where the art world is headed. So. I appreciate your perspective. Thanks so much for taking the time for us today. My pleasure. And enjoy the rest of the day as well. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Man, it's just not every day that I get to speak to someone so intelligent and so well-trained in their world as Andrash. So I really thank him for his time. I hope that you guys enjoyed listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking to him. It was He's, he's such a knowledgeable guy and has such a good, clear perspective on where the art world is going and how technology can be helpful, not hurtful. So uh, really, really fun conversation. I hope you guys will tune in next week. We have another really interesting, really qualified guest, uh, a French woman by the name of Dorothy Shabas, who is a trained painter, fantastic painter, but also a neurologist, a medical doctor, and her specialty is neuroesthetics. If you want to find out what neuroesthetics are, well, tune in next week. I really think you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening to State of the Art. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. It really helps us out. Leaving a review is super easy and helps other listeners just like you discover our podcast. Look, we want to bring you the coolest conversations from art and technology, but we don't know everything. 
If you guys have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, please hit us up on Twitter or Instagram under the handle State of the Art. There's some other awesome exclusive content there too. Until the next episode, this is your host, Andrew Herman, signing off from State of the Art.